0: This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen with our ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker.
1: I'm here with Brady Dale, the author of a book, SBF. Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, is the topic of the book. And that's the, that's the cover, but it says underneath that, how the FTX bankruptcy unwound crypto's very bad good guy. So a lot of ambiguity there in the title, which begs the question, which is what a lot of us want to know, is just exactly who, who is this guy? We have a good idea who he is, but what makes him tick? Is he a crook? Is he misunderstood? Or other questions? So, you've, you've, um, I don't know if you met with him in person, but you did talk to him Mm -hmm. and you have a lot of insights in the book. But I, I, we can talk about those. The book will speak for itself, but curious what your view is on this question and on SBF in general.
2: Sure. I've known Sam. uh, We've never been in the same room together, but I've known him since 2020. That was the first time I ever talked to him one-on-one. We've had several phone conversations over the years and we used to email or text pretty often about sort of the news of the day. Um, as many reporters will tell you, Sam made himself very available and in a very kind of, un- you know, a lot of people who are as prominent as he became have a lot of PR people in between them and and the press and, are, are, you know, it's very filtered. He was he was very easy to get a hold of and was good at, you know, giving pithy comments on things. So you know, you like to hit him up. And so a lot of us did. So uh, I think the important thing, and I really try to deal with this in my book and explain it to people is that Sam was driven by a set of ideas that are known as effective altruism. And he had this goal um, of building up a huge pile of money In, in EA, you know, there are people who are trying to do good for the world, and they're trying to do good for the world in a data-informed way. So they're trying to, they're trying to do stuff that like, has been investigated as actually being helpful and, and doing the most helpful things they can. And Sam was very bought into that. And there's sort of two ways in which EA people are recommended to try to do good in the world. A small number of them, are it's encouraged for them to just go out and actually do good, like work for nonprofits, you know, work for good causes, and try to do good. But then for a larger number of them, you know, more often than not, people in that world go out and get high paying jobs, hopefully ones that don't do harm, and make a lot of money and then give it to things that do good. And so Sam wanted to do that. And he wanted to like make just unbelievable piles of money. And I think the other argument that I make in the book is above and beyond a lot of, a lot of other folks in EA, and you can see this in the way Sam talks about things. Sam also believed he was the smartest about how to do good. So it wasn't just that he wanted to like trust the EA institutions on what he should, you know, give money to support. He was going to be actively involved in all of that. And so I think a lot of, I think that informs a larger understanding of how Sam did a lot of things um, and probably how he justified some of his behavior because my guess is once you start to believe that you're kind of saving the world, it becomes easier in a short-term way to justify taking certain shortcuts so that you can build up the giant war, war chest that you need to save the world. So that's sort of my view of where Sam's coming from. To the question of, is he a crook or not? as you said, the courts will decide, but so far there's several billion dollars missing that shouldn't be missing. You know, that's not good, you know. Um, And, uh, you know, it seems like that money is missing because his firm, Alameda Research, wanted to make some really big swings um, as the crypto market was coming down so they could, so they could, Cement their place as the top dog, as the alpha predator in crypto, going into crypto winner, which um, was a mistake and is was a kind of a crazy thing to do. But so, so yeah, uh, you know, get innocent until proven guilty, but with billions of dollars, you know, on the wind, it's tough to see another interpretation.
1: Fair, okay. I want to get get back to that and what ended up unwinding or un, undoing FTX, but. First, to go back to SBF here, if you can track all these, out, all these uh, acronyms. Um, They're
2: deeply wired for me. Your listeners might yeah, have. Yeah,
1: me, but- me too. Me too. Yeah. I mean, at least the FD, F, SBF versus FTX one. Yeah. But, right. So you have some, th- and what you just said and some other things here about, about him, about Sam, which immediately brings up some contradictions about, about this person. Because you say, personally, I have no doubt that SBF had every intention to give piles and piles of money away. Mm-hmm. And also that he would, in fact, micromanage that process, he said, to, I guess, you know, to give it to the causes he actually believed in.
2: And indeed, not to cut you off, I already had. I mean, he had been okay. giving money away, too. I mean, it wasn't like he was just like letting it set. He, he was giving a lot away. Right. Already. He kind of always had. Anyway, sorry.
1: Yeah. No. Okay, so there's that on the one hand. But on the, on the other hand, he talked a lot about the, how much money he had, more than anyone in crypto, full stop. That's another quote from the book. And- Maybe he wasn't flashy with like personal things, but he talked about that a lot. He was certainly out of there. He was certainly a self-promoter. So, how do you, um, you know, kind of, I guess, uh, reconcile those two kind of extremes, if you will?
2: Well, I don't think those two things are. T- I, I, you know, someone said something to me about that. That made a good. I can't remember. They they justified it well. I mean, it was it was helping to. Sh- I mean, I think on some level, him talking about how much money he made. Um, helped to sort of convince people that they should work with his products and tools because, you know, um, and so it was like, it was kind of good advertising for him. I also don't think there's a big contradiction there in terms of sort of bragging about how well you're doing and giving a lot of, a lot away. I mean, you know, one could argue that all through history, super wealthy people have flexed on their super wealth by giving tons of money away. You know, mm-hmm. I think, I think uh, philanthropy and ego often go hand in hand. So no I think question. those two things are pretty consistent.
1: Okay. Okay. Fair enough. But at the same time, you have what looks like fraud, you know? I mean, couldn't he have done this lawfully? Why did he need to go to these lengths to, you know, assuming these allegations are true or if they're even partly true?
2: Well, that's a thing that, I mean, like, you know, um, oh, what's his name? There's a, there's a, one of his staffers who I interview in the book uh, who who worked with his big gun clients, who was sort of the service guy for the really, the really big clients. It's one of the points he made. I don't know. Uh, well, I think the reason the money disappeared at the end is because they were, they were trying to make some big swings. They were trying to make some really big investments there at the end, and, and they went awry. Um, some of them were bets on the, on the exchange, and some of them, I think, were probably bets off. We, don't, we won't really know until the trial. But um, this is a point that lots of people make, is why did he need more money? Because there's no question that FTX was making a lot of money on its own. Alameda might have been screwing up and no longer you know, the golden child it had once been, but there was no reason not to just at that point with FTX doing as well as it was because people really liked using FTX. People liked mm-hmm. it. They, they said it had you know, good, good user experience, you know, good functionality. Um, it was an exchange people enjoyed using, they were happy using. Uh, you know, It was probably making an easy seven figures a month or something like that. You know, it was making a lot of money, maybe more like six figures, but still plenty of money. It's like, why did he need to make more? And so, uh, he I mean, the short answer is he didn't. Um, you know, it, it was, um, but I, th- I think the thinking was, um, I think i think what he thought was, one, he wanted to overtake Binance. And I think he saw Binance as vulnerable because there's always all these questions about Binance from a regulatory standpoint and sort of their, um, you know, whether or not they'll be taken down by governments the world at some point, I think he thought, he was good enough at building, you know, I said early on that sort of the main security model for his platform was a meme. And that was like, he had built this idea around his company that it was very trust, trustworthy. And I think he thought he could ride through that. And then if Finance did go down, um, FTX would be in a place to take that, but they could only really have it cemented if they got to scale. When you talk to Sam, he was always, always, always talking about scale. He was always talking to getting, getting to millions of people using crypto, really big apps. Like he wanted everything to go really big. And obviously the bigger it went, if if FTX was the biggest exchange out there, and, and of course he had this other idea of building this super app, you know, um, that he wanted the whole world to use, that like all money would go through, that would mean lots and lots of money going into his coffers, which which all of that money would be more influence he could have, more impact he could have on the world. So um, I don't think they needed to do it um, unless. Sam believed that the only real successful outcome for them to to last over time was to be number one, which might be true, you know. Um, so that's what I think his thinking was. It still, you know, led to a bad place, but that's what I think his thinking was.
1: Mm. Okay, interesting. So it sounds then not too much unlike. I hate to bring it up, but Bernie Madoff had a legitimate business as a broker dealer. If we go back here to previous generations of financial crisis, and but he just had this whole scam a literal ponzi scheme but it doesn't mm. sound like like spf was not that brazen like like you're saying like this is a this is there was a legitimate business underneath here and he wasn't purely operating a ponzi like madoff where did it all go wrong um do you think and and could there have been a, could there be an alternate universe where like they kind of went through here or were their risk controls just too poor and their i guess operations and other things just too
2: uh, well, right now it looks like the whole problem was special allowances for Alameda research. I and mean, that really seems right. like that, that's the entire problem. So could it have been okay? Absolutely. I mean, like a hundred percent. It like, if they just had done what they said and treated Alameda like any other customer right. and, you know, let Alameda let, take some losses, let Alameda fall apart completely, you know, FTX would be here today. Sam would still be on the news all the time, you know, like all that you would be able to say against him is, oh, the hedge fund he started it all with has tanked or isn't what it once was, which would, you know, be a blow to his ego, I guess. But FTX is doing so well, it'd be kind of like, who cares, you know? Right. And even then, with the kind of money they were making, even if they just let Alameda bleed out to a certain point, it probably wouldn't have even died. It just probably would have had a crappy year. And then, like, you right. know, they plow some more money back into it and it goes back. But as far as we can tell, the problems with SV- with with FTX was that Alameda just had a different set of rules than everybody else, you know, like, mm-hmm. for example, on the exchange, you know, his his um, his risk engine was people argue was pretty well wired for if you were if you were taking a margin trade, you know, if things got edgy, you got liquidated, which, which is what should happen. Yeah. Um and you got liquidated fast. Like it was, you know, it was brutal about it. Um, but that wasn't true for Alameda. Alameda, um, you know, doesn't look like it, it got as many checks as other people did. So it allowed it to trade a little bit faster, which was its own little advantage. Mm. And then it was able to carry negative balances is what, you know, subsequent reports have shown like it, it, it could go negative. And what it appears, and again, we won't really know until the courts get to look into this, but it does appear that it wasn't just that they were doing negative margin trades. but Actually, they were just taking money directly out of FTX. And covering costs for Alameda, you know, one of the most damning things that was in, I think it was the CFTC complaint, or maybe it was the SEC complaint, or maybe it was both, um, is like they point out um, that famous moment when Caroline Ellison says to CZ that she'll buy all the FTT that he wants to sell at a fixed price, you know, the regulators looking at the books, you know, after the bankruptcy, you know, say that she must have known that Alameda didn't have the money to make that purchase, and she must hmm. have assumed she would take it out of ftx as they had for you know uh, they as they had in the past so yeah there's definitely a world in which it could have survived they just needed to you know treat alameda research the way that they said they were treating it as mm. you know just another customer on the platform
1: so why did they give them this preferential treatment was it due to the relationship between sam and caroline or was it was it
2: well they're all the same i mean they were all the same you know this i mean that's it's all the same kind you know like they're they're, they're technically separate companies but it was all the same thing i mean you know um, and yeah, I think, I think uh, they wanted Alameda to be a big success and have, you know, lots and lots of money that they could use to further research or further invest into things that would further the goals of FTX and, and the whole, I call it the Sam Glommer in the book. You know, it's, it was all just one thing. I mean, it's a million different entities all over the place, but like, you know, this is true of like all companies. They have a million identities, but they're all just like one thing really. It's yeah. another, more one thing than other ones. But I think with the you know, I think more and more evidence shows that like, you know, yes, Sam technically wasn't CEO anymore at Alameda Research, but it seems pretty clear that he was still pretty heavily involved. And so, um, yeah, I think they just wanted to keep being successful. The thing that I find the most mystifying about all of this to me though, is, you know, in my opinion, as someone who's been around here for a while, there is a real difference between people who've been in crypto through a prior bull and bear cycle and and the ones who came in in a more recent one, um, the ones who came in more recently have a harder time knowing when to get out, like when the party's over, right? Those of us who've been around for a prior cycle sort of know that like when Bitcoin hits a really big, crazy high and then it starts to go down, it usually is going to keep going down. It, like never, it has, thus far, every time it's, it's kept going down until it goes around around 80% and then it like rides for a while and then there's another crazy run a little while later when something else exciting happens. What's surprising about SAM and the Sam Samglomerate Is he was he started in crypto full time in 2017 just like I did so he he should have understood like others that you know around November of last year was the time that the party was over but when you when you look at the story from 2023 it really does seem like Alameda research was taking big swings through the first half of 2023 which is crazy like you shouldn't you know that's newbie behavior like you should know that like the big wins are over and that the people who want to look smart later on are starting to move out into like safer things, you know, even if that's just putting it all into Bitcoin or whatever, which is still risky, but like, it's not, you know, like that's gonna, that's gonna be safer over time than trying to make more big bets. And it looks like they were trying to make more big bets. They're trying to Obviously, get-
1: it. Yeah, you said 23, you meant 22, because they, they're they no longer. Yeah, in early 2022. Um,
2: oh, right. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. going up to so the top of 2021. Yeah, it's all becoming a blur. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's yeah. okay.
1: Okay. Fair enough. But I mean, even though, I mean, there were, there are blips here along the way up or down, so maybe they could be forgiven or maybe the, it had already gone that far off of the moving average. I don't know. Yeah.
2: I think, I think anyone who's been around, I'm sorry, November, 2022, if, if. After yeah, that was
1: both, when they went bankrupt. November, 21,
2: 21. Sorry. Yeah. Why am I screwing these years up so bad? Like yeah, November, 21. <laughs> after November, 21, when Bitcoin hit all time high. Right. um, I think everyone, you know, and it was decisively, it wasn't, you know, it was like at the start of the next year, it was like at $40,000, which is still a good Bitcoin price, but it's way down from the high. Mm. Anyone who is still, if you're like at January 1st after that, November, and you're still like, I think we can make a few more big bets. Like, that's just craziness like that, you know, that the the air was coming out of it. You know, that was just that was just obvious. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, there it could work i think it will work differently at some point in the future but we're it's definitely the market is not there yet it's still too
1: small okay so alameda research so alameda is was a hedge is was a hedge fund.
2: yeah that's how it all started and, so, mm-hmm. so going back yeah that's what sam started first he started alameda research yeah. that runs for a couple of years then he decides that they'd be better off if they had an exchange and then they start ftx um but they were all part of the same thing and, and sam was the ceo of both for a long time um and then um and then, you know, he stepped down and, and Caroline and and, um, and Caroline and her, the other guy took over. Yeah. I don't write about Caroline or the other co-founders much in the book because I just don't really think that they're actually that important. I think for the things, okay. I mean, they're important, but they were all doing what Sam wanted is my okay. take as far as yeah. I can tell. And I, and I think we'll see more of that later on. But um, yes, thus far, three of the top executives have um, Gary, Caroline and Nishad have all pled guilty and are, you know, are on the, um, on the Department of Justice and SEC and all, and all of them's complaints.
1: I see, right. And so, but but they are all free. I mean, Sam Bankman-Fried is out on bail.
0: Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information.
1: It's interesting here when you're, I believe one of your last conversations with him and you quoted in the book, and he says that he's concerned about getting, being able to get a, uh, a fair trial in light yeah. of all the news that's come out of him. Do you think that is a realistic concern on his part or is he just trying to defend himself?
2: I think he's trying to defend it. I do think at that point, look, the, the big outstanding question and to me, and, and I write about this in the book and I think the thing we'll find out at trial and this is like this gets to be really nebulous. And the truth is, it doesn't really matter in the ends. But it, to me, it does matter. So the big outstanding question is: Was the loss from Alameda was was that um, was that bets that went wrong on the FTX platform? Was that you know uh, long or short positions they had taken on margin that went south? or did they actually take money out of FTX and move it over for Alameda to use sort of directly they both get you to the same place right like mm-hmm. if, you, if you allow the firm to have a zero balance and it takes really big margin swings and then, then those things go wrong and they're liquidated and but you didn't have proper blocks on so it goes into negative but to me um, it is kind of from a moral stance and I have a feeling a jurors might see it this way too I don't really know but like um it is a different thing to like let a sort of peer company make bets on your platform than it is to it shows a higher level of intentionality than it is to like take 10 million dollars worth of bitcoin pull it out and dump it into another you know entity's wallet and that's to me that's sort of the big outstanding question which we'll see from all this I think one of the points that Sam was trying to make when we talked, and and some of the arguments he was trying to use to defend himself, is that like some of the sort of the the negative realization was was more was more risks, which are a real cost, but they still were like unrealized risks, and then they sort of did get realized towards the end. Um, and so I think that's kind of his argument for why he believes, from some perspective, he could be innocent or at least not as guilty as people think. So, which is which is a really abstract point. I don't know if 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 your Mm. listeners will follow it or even if I entirely follow it, but that's sort of the, I think that's kind of where he was coming from when we talked at the end of last year. Um, But, you know, since then some darker allegations Mm. have come out, for example, this allegation that uh, they, they bribed a Chinese official to get, you know, some of their accounts unlocked. I mean, if, if that turns out to be true, if the evidence of that turns out to be credible, you know, that's pretty, (laughs) that's pretty heavy stuff. And I also just don't know how at the end of the day you get around the fact that like, Several billion dollars are just missing. I mean, and this might, you know, you don't talk about if you don't deal with crypto very much, it might just help to unpack one thing here. A lot of people have talked about what happened with FTX as a bank run, and it was sort of it sort of was. But the really crucial thing for folks to get about crypto exchanges is that they're not banks. So, like all banks, and I'm not being a weird conspiracy theorist when I say this is just how banks work. All banks are vulnerable to bank runs, right? Because the I've whole- seen that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the whole way banks work, I mean, this is not, this is no secret. The way banks work is people put in deposits and they lend most of that money out um, to, you know, work in the economy. That's how it works. They, they only ever have a portion of the money there. That is the design of banks. This is economics 101. However, crypto exchanges should not be at all like that. They should have 100% of all deposits at all times. Because the point of a crypto exchange is, you know, you put in your ninja coin and I put in my alien coin and we trade them back and forth between each other, but a hundred percent of that total amount is there the whole time. And the exchange is making money on our trades. They're taking a little bit off of each of our trades. And maybe you're smarter than me and you and and the dollar value of you know alien coin goes up and you made that bet right. So like when you cash out you've got more money, but the net total value in there is always the same. That's the way it should work in exchanges because they, the money-making model of exchanges is just allowing traders to meet and for them to make a little bit of money on the trades. And in the meantime, all the money should just sit there. And that's why it's so disconcerting that like um, FTX had a bunch of money missing because that shouldn't happen with exchange. Right. It, should, it yes. should all just be there. In fact, with every trade that happens, it should get a little bit easier for exchanges because every time someone trades, a little of the money becomes the exchanges, you know, so like mm-hmm. they have some cushion. you know, but that's, that doesn't seem to be what has happened. So that's, mm-hmm. that's why this story is really dark.
1: Yeah, and there's exchanges are, are regular, have their own regulators and stuff and, and you know, just regular stock exchanges. Um, so, which doesn't seem like FTX was, and this is maybe part of the problem with these things that even though it behaved like an exchange, it wasn't regulated like one. Because I guess it didn't do, do stocks; it just did cryptos.
2: It's um, all crypto, yeah. The, the, yeah. they did some—they did, some, uh, did. I don't think regulators love this, but they would—they did some uh, synthetic stock trading. Hmm. I think. Um, okay. Oh, yeah, but, but anyway, that—but that was all just that. Just that. Just is how their um, margin trading mechanism works. So you know, mm-hmm. kind of, it was still ultimately all uh, crypto exchanges.
1: Hmm. I'm curious. Have you studied other, um, you know, fraudsters in, in the world of finance or elsewhere? And um, do you have any thoughts on where SBF ranks or if, he, if there's any similarities between other ones? Is oh, there something I, like that ties them all together maybe?
2: I mean, I think, you know, this was, I guess, I, I don't have a great example to compare them to, but I think FTX was sort of the classic story of, a company that had made a lot of bets that had gone really well for it, doubled down on those bets at some point, made some losses and then tried to make it back, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And I think that's probably why they kept doing crazier and crazier things is because they, they had made a lot of successes in the past and they thought they could make it back. And, you know, I think, um, Bull markets have a lot of way, have a way of making smart people into idiots because they convince smart people that they're geniuses without Mm -hmm. noting the fact that like kind of everybody's winning. Like if, (laughs) if you're convinced in a bull market that you're like especially smart, you're only fooling yourself because everyone's doing well. And then if you let that convince you as things start to turn that you can do that you can win all, you know, you've made some losses, you made some two-digit bets, you can win it all back. Then you're then you're just going to be in more trouble.
1: Interesting. Actually, what you what came to mind when you were describing that was uh, LTCM, long-term capital management. Do mm-hmm. you know anything about that? Because they did this. They had well, the difference was they had so they actually had some uh, literal Nobel Prize winners on their staff. Yeah. But they they developed this model that that worked until it didn't, and right. then when it didn't, they had to cover it up and 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 did a bunch of other things, and it almost took down the whole. Depending on who you ask, may or may not have almost taken down the whole financial system.
2: Others Um, have brought that up. I know there's a classic book about that that I need to read, but I haven't. I confess. Yeah,
1: when genius failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Roger Lowenstein. Yeah, actually, I would make all the hedge fund reporters that I the new hedge fund reporters read that as their introduction. Oh (laughs) yeah, (laughs) Um, just because he does a really good job explaining some of the trades and things, and and yeah, a little bit of the culture. Um, All right, really interesting stuff here. Do you think that? um, What do you think? Creates this is getting a little bit off base here, but what do you think creates an individual like SBF? Is it, is he just a product of the times? Um, or is there something unique about it in this era perhaps, or in the crypto era? Is he the poster child now of, of cryptos gone bad? Will there be another one? I want to talk more in the second half of the show, by the way, about cryptos in general. So leave that uh, out there, but
2: yeah. What made SBF? I mean, you know, I think SPF was unique in a couple ways. ways. Um, one, I do think Sam is unusually smart. I mean, though he did some really stupid things, I do think he's unusually smart. Um, I think what confused everyone about Sam is, and I said this long before any of this happens, most people in the crypto world fall into one of two camps, either they're just greedy and see a great place to make money because it's a new market and that's always a good spot to make a lot of money fast if you don't screw up. Or they're believers, like they think crypto is changing the world and they're on this mission. And most of those folks would like to get rich too along the way, but, like, but they, they still are believers, right? Sam was confusing because he, he was something else. He was mainly there to make money, that's what he wanted, but he was also a believer. He just wasn't a believer in cryptocurrency. Um, he was a believer in this other set of ideas. So he also, unlike the other people who wanted to make lots of money, who weren't really missionaries, he was a missionary. And so I think he confused people because people sensed this certain amount of like missionary quality to him. And they're used to, when they see a crypto person as a missionary quality, they're like, Oh, he's one of these, you know, crypto believers, but that wasn't the kind of missionary that he was. And that's why a lot of times he was willing to like, screw over crypto people, not really play nice, whatever, because he was there just to make a lot of money so that he could, you know, save the world later or kind of now too, Um, you know, and kind of keep that mission going. Um, but he, he just was a different sort of category. You know, one of my sources I spoke to who knew Sam pretty well also argued, and I can't really speak to this, but they argued he also because he grew up in the valley, you know, and they argue that he is also a product of that culture. You know, he grew up around people who ended up being, you know, multimillionaires and billionaires, and just had grown up steeped in that culture of like to be a success means being a major success. And so he chose a different rubric by which to judge major success. It wasn't just about money, it was about being a mega philanthropist. But um, you know, there could be something to, to that as well. To me, what's most important about Sam is that he had a philosophical worldview that he committed to at an extreme level, which is always dangerous. And Mm. he was so smart and so talented that he was able to do more damage than most people who get kind of, I mean, I would say, I mean, he really even, he was radicalized. I don't think EA is a worldview that tends to lead towards radicalism. Uh, I don't argue that in the book, but I do think he kind of became radicalized on it. And that is a part of his, Mm. that's the part of what made him dangerous. That's what I think, that's how I would explain Sam.
1: Very interesting. Can we talk about EA real quick and describe sure. that what that is? Um, sure. Yeah.
2: EA is effective altruism. So that was the the ideology that Sam adhered to. As I say in the book, I hung out with EAs for a little bit um, here in New York City in 2019. Uh, I was kind of hanging out with some yesterday, actually, sort of at a, at a little gathering that was kind of adjacent to that world. Um, and they're just people who... Um, believe in devoting their life to doing as much good as they possibly can with whatever amount of time that they have on earth and for some people that's doing good for some people that's making a lot of money and giving it to good things and, and the other core thing about eas is, is doing good they try to define rigorously so they really support um causes that have good data backing you know whatever it is that they believe in um, you know they're very into mosquito nets for example um, One of the things I liked about them is they're very into having big philosophical conversations about like what the most important issues are and bringing a lot of information to the table about that. I thought those were fun conversations. So that's the crux of who they are. I mean, I I think on some level, it's also, I think, so that's the ideas if you actually spend some time around them, and I have, it's very much a social cultural movement too. So unlike a lot of other Kind of groups that exist out there, they, there's a very strong um, kind of community component, component to it that really, you know, I grew up in the Protestant church, you know, very mellow Protestant church in the Midwest. And to me, EA looks a lot like kind of a, a, a godless sort of church replacement. It's like a way mm. of having. Some community around a set of ideas, so it's a pretty. It's I would argue it's a pretty nice thing overall. It's just like like yeah. any ideology. Um, some people can go crazy with it, and that sort yeah. of thing.
1: and Sam was an adherent to EA before he was a crypto person. Oh yeah, or even so. a finance person, from the sound of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I he he's talked about this before. I think he kind of committed to EA sometime in college. Okay. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah. All right. Wow, this is fascinating. All yeah. right. Brady Dale, I want to come back and ask you some more about yourself, about your book, about cryptos in general, and about some other stuff. But we are first going to take a short break. If you are a premium subscriber, you will not get the break. Don't go anywhere. Don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host, and of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more
1: information. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details contrarianpod.substack.com. So, if you already have a Substack account and use it, or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So, contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the daily contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. Brady Dale, the author of SBF. You are also, is it a reporter or editor at Axios? Reporter, yeah. Reporter at Axios. So this is the segment of the show where uh, we ask our guests to tell us a little bit more about him or herself, how he or she arrived at his station in life. Usually most people on the podcast are professional investors or economists or academics, we do get the occasional reporter like me and you. But so yeah, so but tell us how you, uh, how, you, how you came to this whole thing, how you came to inv- uh, invest or co- cover crypto and how you came to write the book.
2: Yeah, so uh, I started as a journalist in like 2013. I was a freelancer for several years uh, working for various people. but I was most of what I did um, was about tech. I had, I had been in the nonprofit life for a long time and had kind of wanted to get out of it at a certain point and started going to a lot of tech meetups in Philadelphia and, and kind of liked that world. I liked their attitude, their, their viewpoint. Um, this was kind of all before the tech clash began and uh, kind of started to speak the language and stuff. And I knew I wanted to leave nonprofit life. And I didn't really think I would manage to be able to become a reporter. I sort of thought I'd end up like, writing tweets for startups or something, but as um, some opportunities arose, some people I knew were editors at places, they gave me a shot and it kind of kept going. So then, you know, I became a tech reporter, my first full-time, I, I was kind of sort of full-time at this place called Technically Brooklyn. I covered tech in Brooklyn, it was really more of a part-time job, but, um, and then I became full-time at the former New York Observer, I was there for a couple of years. And I've always gravitated towards writing about weird stuff, like whatever the edgier stuff is, the newer stuff. And so I was doing that and I had had discovered crypto kind of because I was interested in blockchains at at first as a way to do IP management. Um, So that was kind of how I discovered them. It was really nascent at that time. It still is. But um, but that's kind of how I just got interested in them and sort of learned to think about them. And so then as the initial coin offering boom started to happen. I wrote around. I wrote about a few ICOs. That was a pretty weird thing. And at that time, um, Coindesk, which is sort of the big crypto publication out there in the world and and was then, too, um, was just starting to expand its editorial team. It was really tiny at that point. I think uh, in late 2017, it was like six reporters or something like that. And so uh, they had seen my ICO coverage, hit me up, asked me if I wanted to come on. I wasn't really specifically trying to be a crypto reporter, but I really wanted to work someplace else at that point. I was ready to I was ready to move on. And so I went to Coindesk and um, kind of the rest is history. You know, um, I had a good time there. I uh, seemed to, you know, have a pretty good response from the, the audience. Um, I think the, the next big phase for me, the sort of the um, after ICOs, you know, sort of was general quarter. And then the next time I really kind of found a rhythm for myself in the market was um, in 2020 when the, when the um, decentralized finance boom happened. And that's actually when I met Sam for the first time, met him. I talked to him in the middle of the, of the DeFi boom, uh, which is called DeFi Summer now. And uh, and and that led to other opportunities like working for the Defiant and then ultimately Axios. And the story of the book is, well, it's sort of, I guess, two parts. I had already been interested in Sam as a subject. I wanted to write a book about DeFi Summer. And specifically, if, if for folks who read the book, there's a part in the middle about this creation of this thing called SushiSwap and its battle with like the big decentralized finance exchange, Uniswap. And Sam appears in that story. And I thought that would make for a good book. And so I had done a bunch of work on that story, had a book proposal together. It hadn't gone anywhere yet. But then when FTX blew up, um, Wiley found me and asked if I'd be interested in, you know, putting together a book really fast on Sam and, and the story of leading to FTX. And that was an opportunity because that Uniswap, SushiSwap story did kind of bring Sam onto the public stage, that was an opportunity to tell that piece of the story in there, but also all the other things around it. And so, um, so yeah, I agreed to it. I wrote the book and uh, it's coming out May 9th. So there oh, we go. Oh, great.
1: Uh, this is well-timed then as we record this on May 1st. Um, all right, that's really interesting. So you actually had a, your background was first tech and then into finance uh, backdoor through, through the crypto world. Uh, very interesting. So where do you see the crypto world now? Where do you see it in general? Um, you do talk a little about this a little bit in the book. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, I don't think crypto is going anywhere. I think I think it will. I it's my opinion, and always has been, um, that it will eventually become just a normal part of the economy. Um, that has always been my stance. You know, as I always tell people, you know, I graduated high school without an email address. Hardly anyone had them when I graduated from high school. Same. Um, yeah, and I, and. I saw email come along, I saw the web come along, I saw social come along, so the cloud comes along. And I saw people dismiss and make fun of those things every time and just the whole classic, like, why do we need this new whatever dumb thing? And, you know, just sort of go through the classic Gartner hype cycle every time. And what I came away with was if a lot of smart people are excited about a new weird thing, usually it'll get somewhere, though it might take a while. And I think crypto is another example of that. I think it's taking longer because it's disrupting considerably more entrenched powers, you know, but, um, but I, Sam ultimately the story, and I say this, I say this pretty clearly in the book, Sam story is a proof of the, the fundamental points that crypto made. I mean, Satoshi created Bitcoin so that you could control your wealth on your own. So you could manage your wealth in a wallet that you completely had serenity over. Um, and yet people keep using exchanges where they turn their assets over to somebody else because it you know, aids with speed, it aids with convenience, it sort of takes some cognitive load off of them. Um, but the pro- the biggest problems that arise in crypto are when people trust somebody else, like they did FTX. And the whole point of this technology is to make things trustless, right? So, So people who don't get it sort of look at FTX as like proof that crypto is all garbage. And it's like, no, FTX is proof of like the core point from the start is like, don't trust, verify.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you, you talk about that in the book, but wouldn't you at some point need to use this, uh, you know, currency that you're holding in cold storage? I mean, anything is safe if you keep it in under a mattress, right? Um,
2: well, I mean, uh, the crypto mattress is better than, uh, than yeah, the, the exactly. classic. Mattress. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've got to use it, but even then you can, you know, like for example, so you want to, you know, I talked about Uniswap and Sushiswap before, right? Those were both exchanges. Those are both decentralized exchanges. Uh, they're non-custodial exchanges. So if you want to trade, uh, for if you know, I've got alien coin, you've got ninja coin, and we want to trade. Um, you know, we don't trade directly on those exchanges, we trade with the exchange. And so I don't, I don't release my alien coin until the exchange has said this is I'm gonna send you Ninja Coin. And and you know it's a decentralized app, you know, you can see how it works on there, no one can change it. Um, and so you know that that trade is going to happen and you don't you don't release custody until the moment of trade, Whereas opposed to on a centralized exchange, you release custody and then you do all kinds of trades like whatever. And then eventually maybe you decide to take it back off of there. But um, but you don't you, with a decentralized exchange, you don't have to do that. You it's a non-custodial, it's a non-custodial exchange. So uh, it's different in that way. So there and, and crypto continues to work to solve those problems, sort of to make more and more ways of economic transaction trustless but the economy is big and complicated and that's going to take a long time, you know, but, but they're, 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 you know, they've come some way on some of those things and there's a lot more to do.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when it comes to the use case for crypto and you say this in the book that the main use case right now, at least is um, gambling on other cryptos. Right. Mm -hmm. So do you see that changing and how?
2: Uh, Sure. I mean, you know, for example, We are already seeing now. I mean, it's not very visible to you and I. It's not very legible to you and I because we're here in the developed world. But, you know, more and more evidence is coming out that in parts of the world where the economy is not where, well, more important that the current the local currency is not good. More and more people are discovering cryptocurrencies. You know, not as much Bitcoin. There is some of that. They, people do like Bitcoin, but more and more they're discovering, for example, stable coins. You know, coins that uh, you know reflect dollars elsewhere, but you're, they're able to manage in a trustless way. And so we're seeing lot lots more of those kinds of technologies get picked up in those places. And you know, you and I don't need that. We're here in America where most yeah. things work well. The dollar's fine and stuff. So it's just like, oh, what do we care? But like more and more of that kind of stuff is happening. You know. Uh, there's these cases, like, for example, I, you know, I don't know what your listeners think about Canadian truckers, like I don't really have a stance on them. But, uh, you know, they were doing a protest that made the Canadian government bad and mad, and they shut down their bank accounts, you know. And one of the points of cryptocurrency is to be able to be what's called censorship resistance. To be like to be able to transact value and not have anyone stop it. And a bunch of those folks discovered cryptocurrency at that time too. It's just like, well, they can shut down the banks, but they can't shut down crypto wallets. So mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things happen. They get to be you know useful in certain edge cases in the global economy. Um, but then one of these days, you know. Uh, people may and it sort of seems like there's more and more evidence of this like they may get hit to the fact that uh cryptocurrency is also a cheaper way just to move large amounts of money around the world you know like Mm -hmm. uh, we're all paying a decent amount of money for the price of using swift globally i mean it's not much in any given transaction but it adds up to a ton over time uh the price of moving piles of money around in crypto and a it has fewer people in the middle sort of taking cuts it has you know none really just the just the networks themselves and, and B, it can do it cheaply and more fast, you know? Um, so there's other advantages I think will, should kick in eventually, you know, we'll see, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. You know, who knows? Or it, it could just be an edge thing forever. This could be mm-hmm. as big as it ever gets. You know, I could be wrong about all of it. I just don't, that wouldn't be my guess.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Those are some, those are some good points here about, about that. Um, and as far as the the proliferation of coins and Bitcoin versus ether versus Dodgy coin versus whatever. Uh, do we have too many coins now? Do you think there's going to be a, a bleeding out process of that, or has that been already done?
2: Well, that been already done? I mean, it's weird when you look at some of these cryptocurrencies, like the amount of value they still have, you're just like, what? Mm. Um, you know, I say in the book, I think that I think there's only really three blockchains that the world has shown that they really are, you know, they really want. And that's Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and I would say Dogecoin is one of those really? two. I, I think Dogecoin is. Um, I think the world has decided that Dogecoin is, you know, a canonical chain. Everything else is trying to prove uh, that it has some unique value and we'll see. And probably some more of them will. But um, are there too many blockchains? I think almost certainly, you know, one of the things that really bothers me is how new layer ones sort of like alternatives to Bitcoin keep getting launched even now. And I, I, I could be wrong, but but those look to me like cynical plays by investors, just like they know you can get people excited about these things. You get, They buy a bunch of them cheap. The thing goes live. People get excited. They buy like crazy. It drives the price up early on. They sell during that. They make a bunch of easy money, you know, rinse and repeat. That's as far as like, you know, these things like um, SWE and Aftos and all that that have come along. I mean, that is the reasonable person's read on most of those things right now. You know, they've got some nice technology. We'll see, but even then almost all of the cryptocurrencies that have come out for a while now, basically, I mean, I can't think of one that doesn't fit this. They're all just Ethereum knockoffs Mm. in, you know, with different packaging and, and sure. There's shortcomings to how Ethereum started in the first place. I mean, it was the first to do that, but you know, it does continue to keep solving problems. It has far more developers than any other blockchain. Like it's not even close. Um, So I don't really see any of them circumventing them. And so, you're not really seeing any of these blockchains do anything that is um, dramatically different than what Ethereum is already doing. You know, it's just, it's just Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a thousand Ethereum clones so far, Mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah.
1: Okay. Interesting. Uh, You know, what do you think of the the crypto industry in general? Like it seems to be, it's massive. And even now you look at like some of these conference covers, there's one last week and these things are huge. Mm -hmm. Like, it's bigger than any financial conference I can think of. Um, at least in recent memory. I wouldn't know.
2: I never go to financial conferences. I only go to crypto conferences.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, they're big, I'm telling you. And yeah. there's just all this stuff. And is that what do you what do you make of all that? Is that is that too big?
2: Is it well, it's that people are ex- look when when chunks of the economy are new and different and disruptive, there is an outsized chance to make a lot more money, you know, to also lose a lot more money, but it's just like, you know, new growing sectors grow way faster. You know, someday crypto will be boring and those big gains will be over and crypto conferences will probably look a lot like contemporary finance conferences, or they'll just be the same conference. Those will be the same thing. You know, know, finance conferences will be crypto conferences, you know, like when that happens and then it'll just be like, we're excited about four percent returns, you know, like like folks are everywhere. else? And that'll just be the way it is, and that'll that'll be what it looks like when crypto succeeds. But you know, people who who buy the argument for crypto are excited to be here now because they see a chance for outsized gains, and I think that's why more people show up at those things and they have more energy. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a bet, it's a gamble, but uh, they could some of some of them have been right already. Some of them are doing great already. So you know,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. You mentioned this guy, Brett Harrison. You didn't talk about him all that much, but he started something here, uh, Architect. Yeah. So it looks like there are some... Now, he was he was pretty big at FTX, not at Alameda, at FTX. He's not accused of any wrongdoing, I don't think. Um, no,
2: he's, he was at FTX US specifically.
1: Right, okay. So that's even more specific, yeah. yeah. But do you think that, that, that... It doesn't seem to be a blemish on his, on his resume. I mean, it might be, but it doesn't seem to have stopped him at all.
2: It doesn't. Um, no, I don't... Yeah, it doesn't. I think... Well... Uh, I've talked to Brett a little bit at times. Um, I think Brett went way out of his way to present himself as an upstanding citizen, and I think that's probably a part of why he got hired to be FTX US. I mean, the point of FTX US was to try to kind of win over, you know, sort of be FTX's friendly, well-behaved, you know, domestic entity. So I think he was probably hired for like coming off as being a good guy. And then you know he left FTX a little that's bit right. before all of this blew up. I think in October. And uh, it's not clear. I don't think he knew. I don't think he knew that it was this bad. I, I do think he was concerned. Um, and uh, he's kind of talked about that a little bit since then as sort of like things that made him nervous. And so, so yeah, I don't think anyone's accused him of anything. But, but, I, but I do think there's a way in which FTX US was kind of intentionally somewhat firewalled off as a way of being the, um, the Boy Scout for the American regulators and government agencies to try to win them over to crypto.
1: yeah. Yeah, but it, and it ultimately didn't work. Do you see more crypto regulation coming down the pike? I mean, we hear about it a lot every day now. Um, the various—I've
2: been hearing about it since 2017. I'm always really—I get—I get—I get pitches every week about this expert knows what's going to happen with crypto regulation. Let me tell you what's happened. The entire time I've been in this business is like basically nothing, you know. <laughs> okay. Um, but like, I mean, last week Representative McHenry said he's going to roll out. Uh, he said this is the consensus conference, the one that you were talking about a minute ago, that they're going to roll out big crypto legislation in the next two months. I mean, you know, new legislation in three bucks will get a coffee at Starbucks. I mean, you know- legislation No, comes... it's more than three bucks now. Oh, that. really, yeah. Because <laughs> I haven't been to Starbucks for a while. But, yeah. um, but my point is just that like, you know, anyone can write, you and I could write some legislation and submit it. Um, it doesn't mean it's gonna get passed, but um, but, yeah. So who knows? I don't, I don't think, here's what I will say. I don't think the Biden administration is gonna do anything new. I think the only way anything is gonna change is out of Congress. And Congress is a hard time passing anything. But if that were to happen, then yeah, things would change. I don't think, don't look for Gary Gensler's SEC or I think any SEC under the Biden administration um, to do anything. And I'm not, I'm not saying that as a partisan, I, I'm i not a partisan. It's just the Biden administration has been pretty clear. You know, like it's just, it it seems, you know, last year they put out this executive order asking their various agencies to study cryptocurrency. And you know, and to tell that to tell them if there should be concerns and you don't you're never going to if you're if you're a president and you ask your agencies, should I be concerned about anything? The answer is always going to be yes. You know, like the only way you're going to get it, you're only the way you're going to get government agencies to say, like, let's move forward and be innovative is if is if a president says, "I want this, make this happen," you know. But if he says, "Like, should I be nervous?" The answer is always going to be like, "Yes, <laughs> you should be nervous." You know, should I be nervous about peanut butter? Yes, these are these are problems mm-hmm. with peanut butter. It's very dangerous. We should regulate it more. Like that'll they'll always you know cover their own backsides in that way. And I think that's I think so. I think the fact that the executive order was phrased that way sort of shows that they always intended to be non enthusiastic about
1: right mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, there's some interesting stuff here on the long-term prospects of crypto, as well as this book, SBF, uh, available by the time you hear this podcast for sure. And on that, will you tell us, our listeners, how they can find out more about you? I see you on Twitter. Um, And yeah,
2: I mean, you know, obviously, we'd love for folks to buy the book, sort of get you know absorb my voice for 300 pages. Um, But the the thing that would really be great is if folks are interested in this stuff, my co-writer and I, Crystal Kim. Put out a a newsletter every weekday from Axios called Axios Crypto. If you Google Axios Crypto, you'll find it. We try to be real, you know, newbie to intermediate level, friendly in there, just covering the important crypto news every single day, doing some explainers, that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm at Brady Dale on Twitter. So, you know, follow that if you're into Twitter. Understand if people are not these days. But really, the best best thing is that Axios Crypto Newsletter. Check that out.
1: Cool. I'll, I'll link to the Axios Crypto Newsletter and also to the book where people can pick that up. And that's all we got for today. Thank you all for listening. Thank you very much to Brady for coming on. Check out the book. We'll see you here next week. Speak then. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.